Welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan with Peter Evers here at the Bamsey World Headquarters in Brockton, Massachusetts. And an important topic of conversation today as coming out of the pandemic, we're seeing more and more issues with substance misuse and folks dealing with a lot of different emotions that have come through the course of the pandemic. Many who have been self-medicating, if you will, through the course of the pandemic, now coming back to work, now coming back into society. And we're seeing a lot of different things in society as a result of that. And um, it's going to be interesting to see how public officials and public health officials react to this different environment. As welcome Peter Evers, who is the president and CEO of Bamsey. Peter, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Chris, how are you doing? Good. And I'm interested, before we get into our guests and you introduce them, just kind of an upshot as to where you think we are from a mental health and substance misuse place at this point in time, where anecdotally speaking, and even if you watch the news, there's more and more occurrences of whether it's you know behavior we're not used to in public or, or violence, and a lot of that attributable to um, substance misuse. So what is your sense as to where we sit and are things worse in a situation which was very challenging pre-pandemic. We talked a lot about the opioid epidemic and how that affected uh, individuals in New England. So where are we right now, and it, what is your level of concern? I think um, I think it's a great question, Chris. I think my level of concern remains really high, as it was before the pandemic. And you and I have done a lot of work on this and, uh, and spoken many times about this um, disease uh, this, uh, that is going on in this country. And it's not just Massachusetts. Uh, in fact, it's funny, I was actually listening to um, BBC Radio 4 the other day, and they did a program about um, Glasgow and Scotland. Are you English? I am just yeah, for just, just for the purposes for of this uh, of this radio yeah. show. Yeah, I'm glad you disclosed uh, that. But Scotland has the highest overdose rate in uh, Europe, um, and it is off the charts. And it is related a lot to the isolation and the loneliness that COVID has um, that has visited upon many people. So we had a. Um, we had a crisis before, and the, and the pandemic, I believe, has sort of added to that mm-hmm. uh, to that crisis because people have not been able to get to treatment. And you know, we always talk about how treatment works, and uh, especially in the diseases of the brain. Um, I always say this, but chronic diseases uh, on the chart of recovery, um, mental health and substance use disorder, are the highest levels of recovery when you when you put those up against. Uh, diabetes and other chronic diseases so there's always hope at the end of that uh, of that of that arc of recovery but we're in a we're in a tight situation now because we're getting people who really have been isolated and uh, have many people who have lost their jobs as well and remember that this epidemic has not been uh, equally distributed uh, in terms of the misery that has visited on people and so you begin with a population that is vulnerable physically that is often struggles with stable housing those kind of things it's pretty uh it's pretty likely that we're going to get an in- increase in uh substance use um over this last period uh, uh of this last year or so so we're yeah I, I i'm worried but i'm ready to talk about what the you know what the uh what the way out is yes i, d- I definitely want to get to that but i think you make a really good point about how the pandemic has not proportionally affected individuals, where I feel like all have suffered some. Like That's why this is such a significant event, is that everybody gave something during the course of this. Everybody lost something. But 
I was down in the Bronx a couple of weeks ago and was thinking about what it would be like if one of my kids was living in one of those you know, 20-story buildings confined to a studio apartment for 15 months. What would they have lost compared to what my kids in New Hampshire were able to still go outside? They were in their house. But what would those kids have would have been different for them if they're with an abusive parent in a, you know, a studio apartment for 15 hours every day in New York City? Um, so I think that that perspective is definitely important. Um, and I want to get to some of the solutions here. I think we can all fairly easily identify the problems coming out of, of covid but what are the solutions going to be? Because I feel like there is a real need to address this now before things get more and more you know, out of control. Yeah, and we are very lucky today to have some people who can talk directly to that. Um, so I'll just introduce Mary Corlin, who is a prevention overdose educator at our COPE program, and a stalwart of the of the radio show, Jesse Pack, who I think Jesse's been on this show three or four times. So welcome back, Jesse, and welcome, Mary. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I think that, yeah, here's the open question, you know, what, uh, what is happening uh, on the street? What are your concerns? You know, we've just recently um, nationally heard about a $26 billion settlement um, with uh, Big Pharma. Um, won't mention the name of the uh, companies on mm-hmm. because I can't remember them. I would, but, <laughs> um, but Purdue. you know, yep, <laughs> Purdue, yeah, yeah, and um and some of the, those acolytes as well, those associates, um, how are we going to use that money? Is that money going to get to um, people who need that treatment? Um, I'd love to get your first responses about that. Just one upshot on that first. Yeah. You know, we first started talking about those lawsuits five years ago mm-hmm. and the potential for that to fund treatment five years ago in the grips of the um, opioid epidemic. And it just shows you how long these things take a time that it took five years for these significant settlements to start to take place. Anyway, yeah. interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah. You're right. So there's actually two things going on. There's the disease of addiction, and then there's the social destruction of our country's drug po- prohibition policy, which, in my opinion, has killed tens of thousands of Americans who don't need to be dead. A hundred years ago, this country had alcohol prohibition and tens of thousands of Americans died from tainted booze. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what's happening right now. Until we get serious about ending drug prohibition and making sure that there is a clean supply that people who are sick can access, we're going to have hundreds of people die every single day. Yeah, we got into this discussion with uh, Jess Almeida um, about the uh, needle exchange program and how the mindset of Americans has to change on this because what Jesse's referring to is that when you purchase um, drugs from your um, your doctor prescribes drug for you go to the pharmacy, they give you a exact amount and you know exactly what you are getting. When you purchase drugs illegally, you have absolutely no idea what you're getting and that leads to the predominance of overdoses and the deaths that that Jesse is referring to, correct? Right. I absolutely think we need to talk about addiction as a disease, but we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the fact that the majority of these deaths are not occurring just because of the addiction disease model. These deaths are occurring because we have drug prohibition and people cannot get clean supply of drugs, period. Um, I'm perfectly happy and willing to talk about the disease of addiction and... There's lots of great models out there, 
but I'm very frustrated when we keep, I've been having this same conversation for over 10 years and no one's getting serious mm -hmm. about what we need to be talking about. They're getting serious in Canada. They're talking about medical heroin. They're getting serious in Europe. They're talking about medical heroin. Same in the UK. In this country, you can't even have that conversation. And people are dying every single day who don't need to be dead. A lot of times we, we can't even get to that conversation on marijuana. Um, you know, New Hampshire, a state where medicinal marijuana is allowed, but there is no recreational use of mar marijuana despite the surrounding states allowing for that to take place, the potential revenue options as well. So if you can't even get to that place on marijuana, it's very difficult to get to the other ones. The argument, and I'd like to hear from all of you on this particular topic, that is always presented by political figures when asked about this, is that if you legalize it, you will have more people using. What are your pushback from everybody on, on that? And is there an offset where, okay, maybe we'll have more people using but less people will die as a result of the um, the drugs being clean. What are you, your thoughts on that generally? Um, it can't get worse than it already is. Number one, um, people are dying already every single day. Uh, I personally don't believe more people will use more. We're seeing that with marijuana legalization. People aren't suddenly saying, oh, I'd love to like use marijuana. I don't think we would see more use. We would see a precipitous drop in the number of deaths is what we would see. Well, I think, I think what's interesting about this is that it, there's a very myopic view about this, and it, and it is very traditional. It's, I always think of it as Western drugs versus Eastern drugs, if you think about it. You know, if you think about alcohol as a destructive force in this country, um, not only for disease and not only for cirrhotic livers, but also mm -hmm. for the public safety issues um, mm -hmm. that that raises. And we don't have that conversation, what well, we did in the 1920s, um, but, but we seem to have those conversations about those illegal drugs that are seen as those drugs that are coming in almost from other countries or other cultures. I wonder if it's got something to do with that. But you know, Mary. Let me bring you on in on this because I think I think it's uh, it's important we get we hear your voice on that. Um, Chris's Chris's question was, and and it's not an outrageous question. I only mean it because every because so many people in this country believe it. They have a visceral reaction to something that is evidence based, and that really is amazing to me. Go to Germany, look and see what's going right. on there. Mm -hmm. uh, go to many other countries, and you do see a precipitous decline in deaths. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about keeping people alive. You cannot recover if you're a dead person. So right. I'm just, I'd love to hear what you think right. about that. And um, back to the legality of it, I mean, I remember years ago, two decades ago, when syringes were extremely hard to get, mm -hmm. you couldn't purchase them at a pharmacy or go to a syringe distribution center and people were still finding a way to access the tools they needed to inject drugs. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anybody decided once they were available, okay, I'll start injecting drugs now that I can right. get syringes. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people are putting their feelings first when it comes to harm reduction. People 
can get stuck in their way of thinking. They're afraid of change. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear often like, you know, communities don't want syringe distribution centers or syringe disposal uh, harm reduction centers because it will bring users into the city or what have you. But they don't think about what happens when you don't have a place for a syringe disposal. Where do the syringes go? They're going to be on the streets. They're going to be in playgrounds or, you know, the places that people are are concerned about them being. Mm -hmm. We take in a lot more than we give out. Hugely important piece there. Something you said there is hugely important because in Brockton, that's actually happening, right? There are potentially politicians who are pushing back, who are coming to public meetings, who are holding um, bags that that we've given out and saying, you know, why are we doing this? And I'm picking up these needles. It's hugely important, I think, that we make what that we stress that 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 we're picking up and bringing more right. back into the program than right. we're giving out. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and we also have the tools to go into the community and pick up syringes and dispose of them properly. We're trained to handle them in the safest way possible. If somebody in the community calls and, you know, they have some, we we have the tools to go and dispose of them in the safest way possible so that somebody else doesn't get poked or, you know, contracted disease. Right. Um, first responders, police officers, EMTs, when they are out in the community and they have to, you know, go through somebody's stuff or um, they're patting somebody down. We have discussions um, with our clients about not just their own safety. We, of course, those are topic of conversation, but also the safety of others in the community. Don't be afraid to say to a police officer that asks you if you have anything sharp, like a syringe, mm-hmm. don't be afraid to say, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. It's not illegal to have a syringe. Um, so it is a community issue. It's not just, we're not just helping, you know, our clients that are struggling. It We help a, a bigger, a wider cast. Let me ask you a really big question, because I think this happens a lot, that people tend to think, that's not me. That's not my family. And families are these are a circle of compassion, if you like. Mm. I think the answer to this, as with many things, is broadening or widening our, our circle of compassion so that people understand what it's like to go through a disease, to live through a disease, to, uh, to, to the fight for recovery and what that means and how brave people are that, that, that take on that. How do we do that? How do we involve more people in our communities in terms of an understanding of our social situation, but also the disease? Um, so personally, I am always open to discussing things. I, I, I welcome anyone that would like to learn more or have a discussion. I, I, I am very open to that and trying to educate, but also just to have a open conversation about things. I, I think that people are afraid to talk about those things mm-hmm. due to stigma over the years. I, I know 
it's just now that we're, you know, a lot of work has been done to break down the stigma. Um, we have people that are more open about their situations. Um, I've been in recovery for a long time. I struggled for years when I was younger and I try to use my voice as much as possible to, you know, um, educate others and answer any questions. I think really just talking, I, people are scared to talk about things like mm -hmm. this for yeah. some reason, for whatever reason. It's a, an uncomfortable conversation for some people, but I, I think it's a discussion that needs to happen. And more and more people that are in recovery are, are becoming not so embarrassed or um, keeping those things about themselves hidden mm -hmm. and more apt to being, you know, sharing our stories to the public and not just to our mm -hmm. community of others in recovery. What are one or two things in your view that a person in recovery has a knowledge and understanding of that the public just doesn't get, but you wish that they did? Oh, the number one thing is the, um, the mental obsession that the disease of addiction brings. I hear people talk about, oh, the, you know, the reason why people use is because if they, are, if they don't use, they get sick. It's like the flu or, you know, it's like a very bad cold or pneumonia. But they don't always talk about the mental obsession. Mm -hmm. If you are an addict or an alcoholic and you don't have your drink or drug of choice, you will be physically sick. But there's also a mental obsession over what can make you not sick. Um, if you had the flu and you knew what would, you could go take a magical pill to, you know, make you feel better, you would go to the doctor and get that medication to make you mm -hmm. feel better. It's not... As an addict, it's it's common sense in an addict's brain to do what is going to make them feel better. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things that seem so odd when you're looking from the outside in. But, again, if you could talk to somebody and, and just ask those questions like, why, you know, why can't you just stop? Well, we can ex explain to you why we can't stop. You know, there is our brains literally just won't let us. So I want to get back into the, you know, obsessive standpoint, right, where the, it's all that you can think about. It's all that you are, you know, fixated on. Um, is is it exactly like that where it is all that you can think about and there's nothing else that's able to get into your mind and just kind of it gets kind of like a, a mania type of thing? Or is it... You can br brush it off to the side, and then it comes back again. Like, how is the when when you are thinking about it and you're obsessing over it? How dominant is it of your thought process? A and B. As a person in recovery, do you have to have something else that fills that gap? Like, do you have to find a, a new thing uh, that is you know obsessive? Whether it's um, you know focusing on. I don't know, gardening or, or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for some people it's, it's having, um, a, a religious experience in which they focus, um, you know, on, uh, on that. What is, what is it, the obsessive aspect like, and do you have to find something else to, to fill that gap? So, yeah, it's definitely, uh, 
uh, an obsession that takes over pretty much everything. All, all other things going on in life fall to the wayside. They don't matter anywhere near as much as the number one thought when you're using. Um, you can handle certain things after you take care of the number one important thing. It, it, it is something that just, you know, there's no way to escape it or to brush it to the side. I mean, early on, you know, you may be able to, but as uh, your disease progresses, the the urges get stronger and it, the obsessive thoughts get stronger as well. I do think that a big part of um, recovery is finding certain things, replacements or what have you. Yeah. yeah. And that was a huge part of when I, when I was trying to get sober, um, I had to try different things um, because not it's not a one size fits all. There's not, you're not going to, find the perfect, you know, way that the stars align. And I had to go to different programs, different detoxes, try different medications. Um, again, a lot of stigma around a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I had used for over a decade, and I had always thought that medication-assisted tre- treatment was not for me because they would mm-hmm. call it liquid handcuffs and talk mm-hmm. about all these negative mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. came with it. So in my brain, that was something I never wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And then I got into a situation where I had to try that. So that worked for me mm-hmm. um, to have a crutch while I recovered in the beginning and then to come off of that. And But while I was on it, I was able to figure out the things that I needed in my life to exercise and eat healthy and to uh, paint and have all these things to replace that. You have to replace it with something healthy. If you don't, you're just, I mean, you have to change your entire lifestyle. Mm -hmm. You have to change pretty much everything in your life Mm -hmm. um, in order for your your quality of life to get better. I have one more question on this, and I'll give it back to um, to Peter. I don't think a lot of people, particularly in the public, understand what – medication assisted treatment is and so is it that's something that you do for a short period of time does it become you know something that you use all the time in order to uh to to create an environment where you can have a healthier lifestyle jesse if you want to right so medication assisted treatment is actually the gold standard of medical care for opioid use disorder Mm -hmm. and it saves lives every day and includes treatments such as methadone Suboxone, naltrexone, etc. Medication-assisted treatment can also be used for treatment of disorders like alcoholism, Mm -hmm. such as using naltrexone. It depends on the person how long they take the medication-assisted treatment. Unfortunately, MAT is significantly stigmatized, Mm -hmm. and uh, even people in recovery, I think it's Mm -hmm. shameful that people in recovery shame people who are on medication-assisted treatment, quite frankly, but it happens even in the recovery community. Absolutely. Um, people will be, some people will be on methadone for the rest of their lives, mm-hmm. and I think that's a beautiful thing because mm-hmm. it's keeping them alive. Right. Mm-hmm. It's the same. Uh, I take, uh, I take uh, antidepressants. I will have to take antidepressants for the rest of my life or I would probably kill myself from depression. Mm-hmm. And there's no shame in that. No. 
I think, you know, I, I, it's funny because I'm getting so old now that there's various decades I remember. But one of those decades I, I was uh, working in a detox uh, in Roxbury. Um, and it was very much a uh, NA, uh, AA yeah. model. Mm-hmm. And I remember going in there and, you know, I wasn't in recovery and I was shunned a little bit because I didn't have that experience and, and got to understand that a lot more. But the typical treatment for opiate uh, withdrawal was six to seven days of inpatient, which, if you think about it, is a massive disruptor to people. Yep. Yeah. And, and when MAT came about, when the uh, ability was to give people the opportunity to still work, to still look after their children, mm-hmm. to still, you know, go to, you know, do the things that they loved and, 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 and were community involved, was it was like a blessing, mm-hmm. um, especially watching those people's lives, you know, really hot. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more, Jesse. I mean, why do we talk about um, it being a bad thing to be on naltrexone or whatever for the rest of your life when, you know, uh, you might be taking diabetes medication to keep you alive as well? We, it, we, ju- we really have to address that stigma. And I think we do that by listening to the stories of the people who have achieved that. And, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd ask you, Mary, that I talk to so many people who are in um, recovery and they say, the work that I do, I, I immediately want to give back. I immediately mm-hmm. want to get involved in that community because there's so many people who need that help. And having been, uh, having watched uh, treatment, I would say that that intervention, that support, that I've walked in these shoes and I can show you a beacon of hope is almost as important, if not more important, than a clinical intervention. I, I'd like to... I, I agree. Um, I do think that there are people that work in the field that are great and they don't have lived experience. Mm-hmm. However, um, I think that there should be a, a mix of both mm-hmm. uh, people that have lived it. Um, you know, there's a certain level of um, relatability, being able to, you know, really understand what they're going through um, and not just, you know, I've learned this in a book in school. Right. Um, you know, that is, that is valuable as well. But it is um, quite important to have people to, to be able to say, you know, I'm not just preaching these things and telling you, you know, how it's going to work. Um, but I can tell you what worked for me. Um, and isn't that important, though? Because, I, you know, I do remember having this thought that, Everybody's journey is different. Right. And there are so many different ways that people get oh, yeah. a, and achieve yep. uh, recovery. And, you know, people used to say, oh, you know, you have to do it for yourself. Well, if you do it for your kids, that's fine too, right? right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That, and it's funny because that's what I did. I mean, I tried for years, but I just I had so many things going on with my mental health, and I just didn't love myself. And I did hear for years, you can't. Do it until you do it for yourself. Well, I got pregnant and I was forced into it. I was didn't feel ready. I didn't love myself enough to do it. Uh, but for whatever reason, I was able to, you know, through time of nine month period, I was able to, you know, change my thinking, and I was able to recover. Thank God, mm-hmm. I was. Uh, 
So, yeah, I don't like those little sayings because it's not one size fits all. It's just such a wide array of people experiencing addiction. And there are so many ways to recover. You just have to figure out kind of what works for you. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point in that um, we hear a lot, you know, meeting people where they are. And we don't quite – another one of those sayings. We don't (laughs) don't quite know where they are or what is going to be that particular – you know, trigger. And, you know, we hear the stories over and over again about, um, you know, the emergency response person goes out and they um, bring a person uh, back and, you know, that, but it's not their time to quite go into the, the treatment side of things um, yet. What is, in your view, the best way in order to, because people also don't like to be told what to do, um, to convince a person without overtly convincing them that, treatment works and that um, you know, they should enter into a path in recovery because many individuals feel and some of them may be right that their lives are improved by whatever um, drugs they're using or that their lives are improved by having six beers a night as opposed to um, not and dealing with the stress and anxiety and just internalizing that and the health effects that that has on them. So a lot of people either vo- via actual real reasons or, you know, just rationalizing have convinced themselves that their lives are okay using drugs. And I assume at some point in time, you probably thought the same thing, or it was too big of a hurdle. Um, that if I do this now, then I might fall apart. It, those types of rationalities that we, we give ourselves. Yeah. I, at this point, I've lost so many people over the years to overdoses my main goal is progress, not perfection. I don't try to tell people they need to get 100% sober, they need to do this, they need to do that. My only goal is to support them and and help them So it gets back to what Jesse was talking about before, where how dangerous it is to be using yeah. illegal substances because you don't know yep. what you're getting. And because of that, Absolutely. you may think that, you know, the certain dose that is okay for you and it's not going to cause any ill effects, it, it will because you don't exactly know what you're getting. Is that fair? Right. So my main point was actually we need to get away from prohibition. Right. Um, but I would back up what Mary is saying. And, and, of course, using street drugs is dangerous. But And we could make that safer if we stopped prohibition. But that's a whole other discussion. But we need to get away from understanding recovery as abstinence only, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because that is killing people. Yep. Um, recovery, it means, and this is where harm reduction comes into the mm-hmm. picture as well, where it's, uh, you're going to engage in some behaviors, you're going to try and do it in a way that's safer. So if you're drinking every night, well then don't go out and drive. Yep. Take a taxi. Mm-hmm. If you're drinking every night, talk to your doctor about getting on naltrexone. You can drink while taking naltrexone. You will drink less. Mm -hmm. That will protect your liver. If you're using opioids and you're not ready to fully stop, if you're injecting those opioids, get access to clean needles so that you're not going to get infected with HIV. Try a Suboxone script. Try and get some time where you are not using every single day. And it's because what freaks people out who are really trapped in this behavioral disease, which is how I like to look at substance use disorder as a behavioral disease. Um, When we come at people and we say, okay, 
better for you means you need to stop using this drug that you've been using to self-medicate for 10, 20 plus years. People are not going to hear that. Right. If you say to them, hey, what do you want to do today? How can we work with you to make this a little bit safer for you? And people, you know, there's a horrible... uh, um, mythology around people who use drugs, that people who use drugs can't possibly make rational decisions. And that's not always accurate. Um, people can make safer decisions even while they're using. Mm-hmm. So I think um, what I would like to see more is like a melding together of harm reduction work and substance use uh, disorder treatment work and meld those together. And we're starting to see that now with a lot of programs like COPE partnering with health centers to do suboxone Mm -hmm. telehealth wise Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. In conclusion, I want to get Peter's thoughts on this uh, as well. I think you make a tremendous point in that if you are pushing straight up abstinence and that's what people think a treatment is, um, they're going to be afraid of that because they're going to be afraid of failing. Mm -hmm. And they don't, they don't think that they can, can do that. If they think that treatment means um, that and recovery means you're not going to use and you're going to stop, then they don't think that they can hit that mark. And um, people are afraid of going backwards on things. So I think that that's presenting a, um, you know, a strategy that is just not going to breed success. Peter? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, and, and again, it goes back to asking the questions of the person, finding out what their what they're where they are and the motivational interviewing is like a little miracle i mean it really is i remember i remember thinking about it when i was working at boston medical center and 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 i was i don't know about this and i went on it and it was like a little bell going off it's like this is this is exactly how you engage people in the process of of recovery and you give them the ability to be in control of their own destiny. Yes. And then and then all of a sudden, as you said, it's like, oh, I'll fail at that. Well of course you're gonna fail because you've been using a substance for a million different reasons. Mm -hmm. And um and I guess I would finish by saying that the courage of the person who is in recovery is remarkable. Not only the courage, but the strength of will and character. And if you haven't if you haven't been on that journey, you don't understand it. And I always tell the story that we used to do these little surveys at Dimmock Detox, and it said, you know, how did you like the food, for instance, which <laughs> is a bit of a silly question. <laughs> but this one gentleman who I got to know quite well said, the food here is terrible, but it's my fault for being here. And I thought <laughs> that, you know, that is this taking on of, of the disease, of facing it, and the bravery and the courage and the resolve of that person in those few words was just so moving to me. It is, I am ready to get on with my life. And, and I, I, I think we have to tell those stories. And I know that you tell that story, Mary. And, and, you, and you know, thank you for coming on the, on the show today to talk about it. Because there will be somebody that's listening to this who will say, I can see I can see a direction to a place where things are going to be better. So um, thank you so much for well, coming. Thank on. you for having me and letting me share. Mary, Jesse, thank you uh, so much for being here. I am Chris Ryan. That is Peter Evers. This is the Humanity First podcast.